Welcome to Thinking Sheep, a podcast that probes the riches and complexities of life. Thinking Sheep podcast. Think as you lead. Think harder as you follow. As you follow. As you follow. Today on the Thinking Sheep podcast, we're going to discuss race and racism in America. And I'm honored to have as my guest today, Dr. Catherine Meeks. Dr. Meeks is the founding executive director of the Absalom Jones Episcopal Center for Racial Healing, as well as a retired distinguished professor of sociocultural studies and sociology at Wesleyan College. Dr. Meeks is an author who has published seven books, including her recently co-authored book entitled Passionate for Justice, Ida B. Wells, A Prophet for Our Time. I am your host, Skip Walker, and speaking with us today all the way from Atlanta, Georgia, is Dr. Catherine Meeks. How are you doing? I am doing well, and thank you so much for inviting me to join you today. Dr. Meeks, you have been in the fight for racial justice for a long time. Um, talk to us about that moment in your life, that light bulb moment when you knew that race was a serious issue in this country. Oh, my goodness. Well, I grew up in Arkansas, in segregated Arkansas, and I guess I've been knowing this for a very long time. But, you know, as a kid, you don't pay as much attention to things as you as you do as an adult. I resisted the segregation in the South by doing things like when we would go to the segregated doctor's office, I would refuse to sit down when I was a teenager just there was something in me that just thought I don't need to uh, I don't need to give in to this I don't need to go with this but I never did anything of course because I was just a youngster and my parents would have had a fit anyway if I had tried to speak up or say anything because you know you're not you don't supposed to do that when you're a little kid in the south but when I went to college in California I it was more apparent to me. And then I I guess the biggest awakening was when a young kid from the neighborhood who was a 15-year-old black kid was shot by a security guard on my college campus in Los Angeles, in South Central. And it was clearly a race-motivated event. And, And that was the kind of galvanizing for me of making the choice to stand up against racism and, you know, to start really naming it for what it is and seeing myself as a resistor. Right. Well, you also had an event, a painful event that happened in your childhood that was linked to racism. Do you mind talking to us about that? Well, yeah, of course I, I don't mind. My my brother uh, died when he was 12 years old uh, because, um, we lived in, in Arkansas, as I said, where uh, black people couldn't go to the hospital that was uh, near us because it was for white folks only and also very expensive. And so my brother was complaining for a good bit about having stomach aches. And then my father, they, they tried to treat him at home, but then they finally took him to the Warner Brown Hospital, that hospital, which was only 17 miles from where we lived, and they refused to see him 
because he was black and because we were poor. And they said, go to Shreveport in Louisiana, where the charity hospital was. And that hospital was 70 miles away. And we didn't have a car. So my father had to find somebody to take him. And by the time they got him there, he had a ruptured appendix. And so he died and he was and he was only 12. And my father never, ever recovered from losing my brother. And even though as a youngster, I didn't know how to process all of that or understand post-traumatic stress syndrome or even quite understand how how my father was um, so wounded by it. But as an adult, that's been so clear to me. And, and it's also been at some of the core of what pushes me forward, because I think I think even as a kid, I must have made up a made a decision inside of myself that that's not going to happen to me. I'm going to live my life in some kind of way where I'm not going to die and my kids aren't going to die from um, not being able to get medical care. And whether that was true or not, whether I made that resolve as a child or not, it's certainly my resolve as a grown-up. Absolutely, I understand. Well, in the fight against racism, you know, you hear people with all these definitions of what racism is. Uh, for someone like yourself who has been in this fight for a long time, what is your definition of racism? Well, <laughs> you're right. There are lots of things that people say, but the most popular and agreed upon uh, definition, I think, is simply um, prejudice that's been systematized and designed to keep, in our case in this country, black and brown people uh, in their place and away from having access to uh, the resources that white people have. It's it's a system. It's, it's very systemic. It's not uh, just one person's prejudice that somebody's up against when you go out into the world. You know, the the textbook def definition, one of them is prejudice plus power. And that I like that definition because it's simple and clear. It almost feels like a mathematical equation, you know, and you can kind of see that quite easily. The people who, white people have had the power to, um, bring their prejudices together and create systems that have kept black people first and native people and brown Latinx people and Asian people uh, away from certain access to resources. And, you know, it's, it's not, I mean, that's a pretty clear, you can see that pretty clearly. Absolutely. Well, in my own research and just talking to people over the years that are doing similar work in the fight against racism, um, I've often heard and read about the frustrations um, trying to get whites, or I should say some whites, to understand just how real racism is, how much of a reality that it is. It is very real. And so my question to you is, why is it so hard for some white people to really get it? Well, I think the the most um, the most important thing is that that, that most many white people ha don't realize that um, the the world they think the world was made for them. They think the system that's in place is just the nature of reality. 
they don't call it racism, they just call it reality. You know, they, this is the way the world is supposed to be. That's the world they grew up in. Many of them grew up believing that, you know, that everybody had, had could have the same thing even. I mean, some of them just absolutely don't even know. And so I think that um, when you grow up that way and when you sort of um, organize your whole life around that being the truth, when somebody starts trying to tell you, wait a minute, that this way of that things are being done is not right and all these people are excluded and this much hurt is going on in, in this country because of this system, if you start letting yourself understand that and you have built your whole life on it your whole life has got to change mm. and it and i think that people are afraid of that much change i mean it's not like they're just ready to have their lives become something else and they don't even know what the something else is going to be and so there's right now i mean we're right in the middle of this there's so much fear around the possibility of change but a lot of that i think it's because there's so many white people who have uh, banked their lives on this is the way the world's supposed to be, it's supposed to be, and 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 things aren't supposed to uh, uh, affect me. I'm not supposed to have to give up anything because it's it's the world is supposed to work for me the way it always has. And now we're saying, wait a minute, the the rest of us are here, and we're not going to just keep sitting by watching this. Uh, system uh, plow us under and at least not and be quiet about it. And so you see the fear, you see the rage, you see the outrage. And, and a lot of it, it has to do with just flat out being afraid, I think. Wow. Well, that's interesting that you use the word reality, because as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking that dismantling racism also means that you are simultaneously dismantling a certain reality. And uh, I've never quite thought about it that way, but you are. You're dismantling a certain reality. All those social norms, all those written codes and unwritten codes have to change. And I, I could see now that that is scary. Yeah, frightening. Without ever having, without ever having to really interrogate it or having it interrogated, without really having to um, question it, because it's if you think the it's reality, it's like your name. You don't get up every day wondering, is your name really your name? You know, and so you you get up every morning thinking this is the way the world is. This is the way the world works. The world works for me. Because it's supposed to, because my skin is white. And then one day somebody says, well, the world should work for me too, and my skin is black. And it depends upon you having to reimagine yourself in order to include me in the world working for me. And you don't have any capacity to do that because there's never been any question in your mind to, to make you think that, that anything other than what you thought was the truth. It's really kind of a pitiful place to be, you know, when you get right down to it. Absolutely it is. Well, what about blacks? Is there anything that blacks need to do better? Is there anything that blacks are not getting, not understanding um, in this struggle? 
um, what what can blacks do better? Well, I think I think um, well, the hardest one of the hardest things it seems to me is the trauma that's been created from living in a racist society and sort of internalizing a lot of the negative um, narrative that's been put out and then living into the truth of those negative narratives without understanding what's happened to you. I think that uh, in, we call that internalized depression in the in the literature of of working, you know, I used to teach a class called The Nature and Manifestation of Prejudice. And in that class, we talked about, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, internalized depression. I do believe that Black people and Brown people fail to realize how much uh, internalized depression is an issue and and it gets played out in ways that are negative in in our communities and that's that's an area that I really want to get more intentional about teaching about and writing about and talking about because I believe it's pretty detrimental to us as black people and I think we would have to deal with that even if ever if we woke up tomorrow and all the racist structures were gone we would still have to deal with this whole notion of how we see ourselves yes. and how we treat each other. We, that, that we, that is our work to do. And I, the other thing is, I think we've made, the, we've made the wrong assumption as black and brown people that racism was our only issue, but we've got these issues of internalized depression. We also got the issues of just being human beings on the planet and, and like every other human being. And so I, I think we missed we miscalculated all of that and just assigned everything that that to white folks and racism and then kind of are waiting for the pendulum to swing back so we can all be okay. And I I, I believe that's a mis, misunderstanding for on our part of what's the challenge to human beings on the planet. Yes. Well, let's switch gears for a minute to the year 2020. Boy, what a year. We had COVID-19. We had all of the political madness. Um, And then in May, we had the death of our brother, George Floyd. Can you talk to us about why that death rocked us to our core and what it still means for us now? Well, you know, I think the biggest reason was that we watched it happen. Mm. I think that, that, that I mean, there, there are lots of, you know, Ahmaud Aubrey was killed, Breonna Taylor was killed, all in the same, same kind of frame. And people weren't uh, as, as um, incensed by those deaths. There have been several deaths since, and people haven't been... And as incensed as about George Floyd. And I've really thought about this hard and, and long. And I think a lot of it, I think two things, people were home because of COVID and, and they were uh, uh, in a different place in terms of their energy, in terms of, in terms of what was happening inside their heads and already feeling a bit, um, totally put upon because of the virus and everything that was happening. I think that played into it. But it, but but more important than that, I think, was that we watched a white man put his knee on a black man's neck 
and keep it on there until the black man died. And we watched that in real time. And, and I don't think we've ever, that's ever happened before that in that kind of way. And I just think it struck a chord that just had never been struck before all over the world, because I'm 74 years old and I don't remember the whole world standing up in protest about something that happened to a black person in America before the way that they did around George Floyd. Yeah, people were outraged all around the world, all around and the I world. And I think it's because we saw it, Skip, because it's, it's, it can't be because a black person died, because how many black people have died at the hands of police? So it's it has to be more than that, even though that in itself is enough to be completely enraged about. But I think it was the way it was done and the guy stand, sitting there looking all around like he doesn't even know what planet he's on. And um, when he could have stopped and the man is, I mean, it, here this man is, is calling out. I mean, it was just, it was just barbaric beyond anybody's imagination. Yeah. And I believe that that just, I think that struck a core that, that, that only something like that could strike, you know, because how, and, and then, and then all the folks around, I mean, it's like complicit murder and you, we watched it. We watched it. I mean, it, I didn't watch it and I can't stand to watch it. Every time in the news when they would go to show it, I would turn the TV off because I just couldn't stand to see it. I mean, I heard it. I knew it happened. But, you know, but it was watched. And, and that that's just, I mean, that's just, a, that was a different thing. Yes, it was. Well, also in 2020, of course, Politically speaking, we had a very controversial president in Donald Trump. Can you talk to us about what his presidency meant and maybe still means as far as race in this country and why so many white evangelicals stood by him no matter what his behavior was, no matter what words came out of his mouth, uh, they stood by him. They stood by him in the name of Jesus. Well, it's very disturbing to, to have people who say they had had a system, a, a code of ethics that um, has to do with faith and has to do with following Jesus and that they could follow somebody like him and, and support the things that he did. That's disturbing. To, um, and, but it's sort of the it's disturbing, but it's also similar to me to saying, you know, people who uh, had church in the morning and went out and lynched somebody at lunch, calling themselves Christians. And so I say those are not Christians. They don't understand the Jesus that I'm following because the Jesus that I'm following doesn't allow you to go kill people or maim people or mistreat people or take little children from their parents at the border or castigate women that that Jesus doesn't allow those things so if so I don't know what who your Jesus is it's kind of like Sojourner Truth saying when she heard white folks talk about Jesus she wondered what Jesus they were talking about yes you know so so I wonder what Jesus they're following that's that's part of my first response the second thing is I think Donald Trump is is so much a symptom more than, I mean, a, yeah, a symptom more than, than the cause that the, the, the root, um, 
cause in this country for the problems we have is this indefensible system of systemic racism that we just can't seem to let go of. And the, the, the fact that nobody, the white supremacy system never intended for black and brown and native people to be free and equal in this country. Never. That was not the intention. There was some misunderstanding that, that slavery could just go on forever and they could just have this world where there were these free white folks who had everything and the, and the black folks would be slaves and anybody who wasn't white would be enslaved. And so that ridiculous idea has long been uh, proven to be uh, false. And so that, but but there's a whole lot of folks that never bought into the falsity around it, and are still hoping that the the Confederacy is going to rise again, and and slavery will come back. I guess I I don't know if they want slavery to come back, but they seem to think that something should come back to get rid of black and brown folks, and so that that desire, that foundation, that that um that pot that has always been there, and Trump just. Rode on, he rode on that wave and he poured kerosene on that flame and caused all the trouble that he has caused in the, in the four years he was in office and continues to cause because there are many people who agree with him. You know, people talk about folks being scared of him. I don't know that they're scared of him as much as it is that they agree with him. Well, 70 million Americans, a little over 70 million Americans did vote for him. That is a lot of people. Well, and I, I have a theory about that. I think that I think a lot of those folks who voted for him really do agree with him and they really would like the world that Trump describes. But I think a lot of them also are people who just feel nobody pays any attention to them. They've been left out. Nobody is fighting a cause, their cause. And so Trump was their best bet to get what they think would make it uh, make life better for them because they didn't think the Democrats were going to ever consider them. So I think the Democrats have got a lot of work to do in terms of help, helping people to realize that they they see everybody and that everybody is important because a lot of I think a lot of those 70 million people don't necessarily want to tear the world up or run off black and brown people. They just want to live. And and they have not been able to very well because a lot of a lot of stuff hasn't worked for them either. So I, I'm hoping, I'm praying and hoping that as people see the uh, the Biden administration really trying to do good for everybody, that some of those folks will come to their senses and start realizing, well, maybe we need to think about this a little harder. That that's my hope anyway. Well, when you heard the slogan. Make America great again. What did that say to you? Um, what did you really hear in that? It's simple code language for make America white again. Mm. Make white prevail. White men, white men have got to come to grips with that their day of being supreme has come to an end. I mean, it, it has indeed come to an end already. Just look at the last election and look at who the cabinet is and look at how the how things are shifting. So in addition to that, in what is another, this is 2021. So the projection, I think, is about 
the 2030s, somewhere in there, it's going to be uh, more Latinx people in this country and and Black people combined will be more than the white folks. And 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 they, I think that that on some very um, perhaps subterranean level, there's some awareness about the truth about that. And that's a part of what we're seeing. I think we're seeing the the last vestiges of a supremacist mindset that's got somehow has caught a glimpse of what the future is going to be. And it, it's already trying to figure out how to make itself be supreme. All this effort to to you know, to keep black people from voting is really absurd, except for some group of folks who think that they've got something really to be afraid of. And they, they do have to be afraid of black and brown and poor white folks deciding to come together, which was always the fear for the white ruling class. Yeah, well, there are many whites and even some blacks that say, hey, you know, look, Let's stop talking about all this racism stuff. Slavery was a long time ago. Jim Crow was a long time ago. Get over it. America is now the land of opportunity for all. Stop your whining. Stop your crying. Stop playing the victim. If you work hard enough, anybody can make it. You even have some black talk show hosts and radio personalities that are paid a lot of money to push that narrative. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Well, that's unfortunate because it's not true. And so I think that uh, it's very difficult to argue with folks like that. So I don't really spend a lot of time trying to argue with them. But, I, but I'm just I'm real clear about how misguided they are. And if, they really, if you really believe that, you just don't know anything. And if you're doing it for money, then you're just a disingenuous person. And what it, what good is it going to be to try to talk to that person? So, but but the truth is that you can't catch up and get and go do everything you need to do to to have what you want in a world where you started out behind and everything is poised against you. And we know that the systems are set up in ways to control. And just as we just got to watching all the efforts to undermine an election. If people will be that public about trying to undermine an election, think about all this, the secret stuff they'll do to undermine black and brown people. So, I, I you know, I just think that that um, there's a there's a level of when people are saying that kind of stuff, it's basically self-serving for them, and 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 it is self-serving and it's an unwillingness to pay attention to the truth and black people that do that kind of stuff and, and act like, like the Ben Carson's and the Herman Cain's and all these folks that buy into that, that way of looking at the world are, are just people who only care about themselves and are clear that, that, you know, this is a beneficial way for them to be in the world. And to tell you the truth there's all, they've always been here. Yeah. We've always had them. They didn't just show up in the 20th, 2020 or even in the 20th century they've been here all the time and and we just have to navigate around them yeah martin luther king and james baldwin often spoke about the danger of buying into those foolish narratives yes they have and you know you pull yourself up by your bootstraps but you don't have on any shoes that's a pretty good how are you supposed to do that you know and um i just think that 
the, the folks who, I mean, somebody like Ben Carson just gets on my nerves because he grew up in public housing with a mother who couldn't read. And then he has the audacity to, to try to be um, somebody who is critical and very, um, has a lot of no compassion for poor people living in public housing. And he was just a very fortunate young man that got a chance, got a lot of good chances. Oh, yeah. Our brother Ben Carson is a brilliant man and an exception in so many ways. So many ways. Well, your work is very much connected to the Episcopal Church. Um, what series of events in your life led you to the Episcopal Church? Well, um... I guess for all of my life, I've been a person who has been on a search to find as much of a meaningful relationship and way to be present to God and God's voice and involved with God's people as possible. And I've always been able to and willing to look everywhere to hear truth that made sense to me. So when I was in my early 30s, I was searching for for um religious community that somehow made me think that it was all right to be a smart person who thought deeply about things, but also to have faith and to be spiritual and to pursue a, a contemplative life. I was looking for a place like that. And I, I started, someone introduced me to Episcopal churches that were hosting uh, workshops on Carl Jung, the Swiss psychiatrist, and so I'd not, I had not heard about much about the Episcopal Church. I guess I probably knew it existed, but I didn't really know anything much about it. And so I started going to those conferences, like Dream Work conferences, and uh, just conferences on Jung. And the more, I, and they were always being sponsored by Episcopalians and hosted by. Uh, a lot of the time, a few times, the per presenter was a former Episcopal priest who had become a Jungian and was talking about dreams and the, the, uh, doing a presentation. So that was very fascinating to me. I started wondering, what kind of church is it that is that makes it possible for these kinds of intellectual thoughts to be being talked about and this kind of pursuit of Jungian psychology to be acceptable. And that was a, a very enticing uh, construct for me to, to pay attention to. And I started investigating the church a little bit and started going to a little church in Macon and really discovered that I absolutely loved the Episcopal liturgy. And it was just, from then it was just like one thing after another. I loved the, the the kind of um, uh, willingness to be open to trying to understand reality from more than one vantage point, and also just the, the the Episcopal liturgy. So those two things together really pulled me toward uh, becoming an Episcopalian in my mid thirties. And now I'm seventy four, so I've been an Episcopalian for over thirty years, and I'm not sorry about it. I still think I still love the liturgy. And I think it's got the church has got a lot of work to do. Needs to do it's needs to really work on its uh, commitment to racism, even though it doesn't think it's got a commitment to racism. I'm pretty sure folks would like to 
think that's not true, but we have we have that problem, and we've got to we've got to address it more openly. And and that's part of the reason why I'm so grateful to be running the Center for Racial Healing. Right. So, so the center used to be called, if I'm not mistaken, the Center for Racial Reconciliation. Is now called the Center for Racial Healing. Uh, can you talk more about the center and why healing instead of reconciliation? Yes, so it's actually called the Center for Racial Healing because I don't believe that racial reconciliation is a possibility in the United States at the moment because I don't think that the relationships between black and white people were ever real relationships. I think that you cannot have real relationships with people that you don't respect as equals. And for the most part, those relationships that existed in the 19th century were subservient relationships with inequities all over the place. And so even though somebody will talk about their uh, their slaves or their servants and, and talk about how they love them, it's really like you're talking about how you loved your pet goat or something. And so that's not the same thing as two people who see each other as equals coming together and being in relationship with one another. So I think that the racial healing notion fits the the the, the need that we've got at the moment to do the work of racial healing. And once we have done that work where black and white folks are looking at each other and seeing the face of God and seeing one another as equal human beings, that there's a possibility that some relationships can emerge. And so for me, it's about racial healing that can, that can lead us to relationships. Because when we talk about reconciliation, we basically are wanting to jump from where we are to some place where we just decide we're all going to try to figure out how to uh, coalesce with one another and be uh, kind of, you know, uh, we're going to we're going to let everybody live and let live. But we're not going to dig into the stuff that really needs to be changed and really do the work that needs to be done. If we'd ever decided to do that, we wouldn't be in the place we're in now anyway. Mm -hmm. And so I, I feel like that the Center for Racial Healing is addressing this issue in the way that it needs to be by by holding up this kind of mirror and and trying to get people to enter into the work with an honest desire to dig up this foundation and and build one that's that's got more that, that that's closer to the truth and and so that for three years now i've been running the Absalom Jones Center for Racial Healing for the uh, Episcopal Church, which is a collaborative project between the Diocese of Atlanta and the presiding bishop. And it's uh, gone from being a, I, I went from being the chair of the Commission for Dismantling Racism in the Diocese of Atlanta to being the founding executive director for the center. And we are a people, uh, we, we, I tell people, all the time. The focus of the center is to be a brave space where the truth can be told. And we consider ourselves to be compassionate truth tellers. So we're not going to beat people up. We want to be loving and kind, but we will tell the truth as best we know it every time we open our mouths. And, and the whole idea is to open spaces so people can really start to see one another as God sees us and, and then try to build bridges to each other. 
Yeah, I think it's so appropriate that the center is named after Absalom Jones, the first African-American to be ordained as a priest at the Episcopal Church. Um, A man that was born into slavery, later became an abolitionist, even bought his wife's freedom, um, founded the Free African Society, you know, understanding that, you know, he, he had to work with whites but he never lost touch with his African roots. And he knew that the black struggle was a unique and specific struggle in this country. That's right. That's right. And, and I think, and, and, you know, to just highlight what I've just said, there's so many Episcopalians who've got no idea who Absalom Jones is and don't know anything about him. And it just speaks to the, the way our churches is, um, divided around race. I mean, we, we, we want to uh, see ourselves as being better than we are when it comes to how we've dealt with race. And, and it doesn't take long to get people in the pew really disturbed when you start talking about it. However, I have noticed that that's gotten some better over the last four or five years because things have been so out on the street and folks have had to pay attention in a little different way than they did before. But, but it's still a lot of, a lot of folks sitting in our pews on Sunday mornings when we were sitting in our pews before COVID uh, thinking that the only reason why we have a race problem is because we keep talking about it. Ah, yes. Well, what would you say to a pastor, you know, of any denomination, a pastor who is looking, um, to make his congregation more aware of racism and to get involved in the work, to get involved in the fight um, against racism, to dismantle racism. Um, What would you say to a pastor? You know, he, uh, I've often talked to pastors myself. They say, man, the the work is just so, so vast. Where do you start? I I, I try, I I think the first thing I would really do is see, what that person has said in in their congregation, mm-hmm. what have what what kinds of sermons have, has that person been preaching? And if if no kind of sermon, then that might be a place to start and start seeing what what a, some sermons about the the necessity for racial healing and and justice and equity. Uh, what what buttons get pushed of the folks in the congregation? And then when you start seeing whatever the feedback is, if it's positive or negative, gather those people together and start having conversations with them. I think that any work like that needs to start from the, from the ground up, needs to be organic. It needs to be, uh, you know, conversations and people uh, in the pew coming to uh, either speak up against it or, or for it and getting on board or not getting on board so that, it's not any anything that somebody's trying to pour down somebody's throat. And so I just think you have to start, you have to start at the beginning. And you start with your you you've awakened yourself because you want to do something. Well, now you start by seeing who in your congregation wants to do something. Hmm. And there'll always be people. I mean, there are always progressive, open-minded people or people who are are aware 
that things are not right and they want to do something about it. They're, they're people who really want to be a, a true follower of Jesus. And they know that to truly follow Jesus, you can't go around thinking some people are better than other people. Yeah. And and that because they're better, they deserve, you deserve everything because your skin's white and you're better. And the people who don't look like you don't deserve anything. There are lots of folks who know that's not right. And they don't want to be a part of that kind of thinking or or be or being. And so and they they're in all of our churches. That's the that's the really good news. And that's the news that makes me happy is knowing that there are people that want to do better, want to want us to do right, want to want to be open, want to build bridges, want to understand. And I really do appreciate that. And I'm so glad to know because I've traveled all over the church talking to folks, I really do know that they are everywhere. And that's, that gives me hope yes. that we can do something because we're not all in one boat. Absolutely. And, and those whites who really do understand, and I have, I have some friends who are white. They say to me all the time, look, I get it, but it's so hard for me to get my family members, uh, my white friends to, to understand that racism is a serious issue. They really just don't see it. They don't get it. Um, what do I do? What message do you have for them? Well, I, you know, I think that for one thing, you, you, you have to stay totally clear about the fact that you can't make anybody do anything. Mm. And you have, to, you have to be willing to be honest and authentic and tell the truth as best you understand it and live into the things that you're learning to the best of your ability, that's your first commitment is to yourself. And then you you seek out the people that will that want to be on the journey with you and and work together with those people. And I, I don't think I think it's a waste of good energy to just try to uh, get somebody to change when to made up their minds that they're never going to change. That's you, discerning who is going to listen and who isn't is part of work too. And, and being willing to to fail, you know, to know that you're not going to get everybody. That's, you just got to be, uh, I do this work for uh, a living and I've realized that not everybody is going to get reached. They're going to be racist when it's all said and done. They're going to be people who don't want to change. They're going to be people who resist until they die. And that's okay. I can't do anything about that except keep being faithful, keep going forward, and keep telling the best truth I can find to tell. So I and I I always try to encourage white people to not try to play God and to be willing to um you know to see their limitations and yet not to use that those limitations as an excuse to do nothing. Mm. Because you 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 fall into that trap. Well, since it's so hard and since so many people don't want to hear it, I'll just keep my mouth shut. Well, that's a trap you don't need to fall into. You don't need to keep your mouth shut. You need to speak up and speak out and and go and talk to the folks who will listen and and do you know, change what you can. You know, the the I was doing a workshop the other day and I said that the prayer that means the most to me, I think of all the prayers I've ever read, is a serenity prayer that the alcoholics have. I think the alcoholics use it in AA a lot about uh, changing what you can change and accepting what you can change and having the wisdom to see the difference, to know the difference. 
Yeah. That just means so much to me. So I try to encourage people to learn, you know, what is it that you can change? Well, then go do that and go do that with all your heart and soul. And the things you can't change, you'll have to live with for a while. And maybe if you live and live with them, you don't ever know. Uh, it some change may come that you that you can't account for of your willingness to persevere. Yes. Well, um, you know, last month we had the unfortunate situation on Capitol Hill, January sixth. That'll be a date that none of us will ever forget. Um, taking all of your hard work into consideration, you know, when you see things that happen like that, are you optimistic about the future in this country concerning race and race relations? Well, I think I don't, I think I don't, I, I'm, I don't use the word optimistic at all because I think that's probably not, I'm probably not, but I think I is hopeful. I think um, because I believe uh, my hope is, uh, I'm, well, let me back up and say, I agree with, um, I, I resonate with Sojourner Truth when she asked Frederick Douglass on the occasion of listening, listening to him lament about how bad everything was for black people. She asked him if God was dead. And, and and it was a rhetorical question in a way, and she answered it, if God is not dead, then there's a reason to have hope because change change can come. So I, I believe that as long as God is alive, that things can change and that things will change. Now, do I think it could be simple or easy? Do I think we will miss having a civil war, a literal civil war? I don't know. I think we're probably closer to having a civil war today than we have been in a long time in this country because of the rage and and of and everybody just on edge so so much so so but I but I cannot be without hope because as long as God's alive there could you know all kinds of things can happen that that you just couldn't see. I mean, that God has all these doors. I, I I love to think about that scripture that talks about the cattle on ten thousand hills, and I love that the the my most favorite line of the liturgy is is the and I can't ever keep all the rights straight, but it's the one where the the, the prayer is um, talking about blessing the people who have died in the faith and the people to whom. Only God knows about their faith. Yes. That prayer in the liturgy and that scripture of 10,000 cattle on a hill make me believe that God is working in ways that I can't even begin to imagine. And I have to be willing to have hope that the doors that need to open will open and people will people will go in and out of doors that they maybe didn't even weren't even planning to go in and out of so it's hope it's a, it's a deeper it's it's not that I'm I don't trust that human beings are just going to wake up and be better what I trust is that they're going to be folks forever who want to follow God and God's going to lead people into being uh, well that people are going to want to be well that people are see 
uh, folks being um, integrated and marginalized. And I, I have hope about that. I have hope about that. I don't expect to see it in my lifetime. Of course not, because we've got too far to go. But I do believe the day will come when uh, uh, the, the, race, the race issue in the United States will be better than it is now. Because for one thing, white folks are going to be a minority and, and they're going to have to learn a, a new way to see the world. Yes, well, Dr. Meeks, I sure appreciate you coming on and thank you for sharing your wisdom. And uh, I hope to have you back. Thank you for inviting me to um, be a part of this conversation. And I'm always glad to be a part of any conversation that's trying to talk about healing. Amen to that. You have been listening to the Thinking Sheet Podcast. I am your host, Skip Walker. And my guest today was Dr. Catherine Meeks, Executive Director of the Episcopal Center for Racial Healing in Atlanta, Georgia. You can visit the center online at centerforracialhealing.org. That's centerforracialhealing.org. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Skip Walker Music. And follow the Thinking Sheep podcast on Instagram at Thinking Sheep One. That's Thinking Sheep, the number one. Join us in a few weeks for another exciting guest. Thinking Sheep Podcast. Think as you lead. Think harder as you follow. As you follow.